bunch of years ago, I was uh, at my house. I lived uh, then in the, in the neighborhood that Isaac, um, our worship leader, lives now. So Isaac will back this story up. You can ask him after church. There's a shortcut out of the neighborhood that goes up the side of a mountain. There's a couple switchbacks. It's very steep. And uh, you can avoid a couple of lights and get out onto Route 46 going uh, east or west when you get up to the top of the hill. My grandmother was leaving my house. My grandmother wanted to go back to our home in South Plainfield. So she took it up to the top and she wanted to get on Route 46 east. When you get to the top, it's a little bit of a dangerous intersection up there. You get to the top, it's just a stop sign, no light. And you're literally on, the, uh, on, on 46 on the mountain coming down into the Hackettstown area. And uh, there's a bend, you can't really see what cars are coming. And unless you know this, or ignore the one-way sign, um, you might think it's a two-way street. It's not, because Route 46 East is hidden behind the tree line. You actually have to go straight across when there's a break in traffic, up a U-turn, and then go onto Route 46 East. My grandmother was getting a little older. Her, uh, her um, the guy that had brought her down to see us, he was quite a bit older, and they weren't really sure of where they're going, so they got to the top and they made the left and began driving east down Route 46 West. And, uh, you know, we didn't know about it. We were home. But my mother was listening to the voice of Hackettstown, New Jersey, WRNJ, as she always did. And uh, whatever Carpenter song happened to be playing at the moment was interrupted by a warning that there was a driver on Route 46 going in the wrong direction. So my father, knowing his mother, was a little bit worried. He, he called her up quickly and said, Mom, be super careful. Apparently there's a, a car driving the wrong way down Route 46. To which my grandmother said, one, I've counted 10 of them so far. <laughs> All of that is a true story except for the phone call. Um, this morning I want to begin uh, by taking a look at what seems like an old school, I'm going to explain why I told you that story in a minute. I'm going to begin by talking about an old school and somewhat scary religious word, I think, depending on your religious tradition. The word is repent. Why do I tell you a funny story about my grandmother? Because in terms of the side of Route 46 she was on, right, my grandmother, this is what she needed to do. My grandmother needed to repent. She needed not to repent of her sins. Well, she did need to repent of her sins, too. Um, but uh, she needed to repent of the direction she was going in. She needed to change her mind and her ways, right? Simply stated, that's what that kind of scary religious word means. Nothing more than that. It is, uh, in a sense, two things, right? Number one is you change your mind, and then number two is you change your direction because you changed your mind. Interesting, okay? I didn't know this till this week when I was working on this. In the New Testament, in the Greek in which the New Testament is written, there were actually in, in Greek depending on how you count it, two or three, but predominantly two words that we've translated into the English word, repent. The first word, I'm going to try to pronounce these best I can, metamelomai, metamelomai, right? That was the first word in the Greek that gets translated into repent. Now, this is, when you and I think of the word repentance, that's the word we're actually thinking of most of the time, metamelomai, right? What that means is, I've changed my mind, and I now have regret or remorse for the things that I've done. I, I feel badly about what's taken place, right? I, I feel terrible about how things have turned out. But metal, 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 metal
that I am changing who I am, it's not producing a real heart change, right? Let me give you an example. Matthew tells us that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Judas felt bad about what he had done to Jesus. He had remorse, right? But, but he did not change his person. He felt bad for what he had done, right? But, but he didn't, it didn't change his heart. He just he felt bad. This would be like my grandmother, right? Feeling bad about going the wrong way and the havoc all over Route 46, people spinning out of control, right? But continuing on in the same direction. And again, this is sincere, okay? This is real regret. Like, I have regrets. I, I feel badly about it, right? My grandmother would have felt bad, but she, you know, she had to get home. This tends to be the way that we see and understand the word repentance, right? Maybe you come from a religious tradition where you, you go to confession, and re regularly you might say, I've gone and I've repented for my sins. I, I've acknowledged my sins, and, and I feel terrible about them. I'm, I feel guilty. I, I'm in, in, in some way, I'm ashamed. That is one form of repentance, the one that we're familiar with, okay? The second one is actually quite different. In the Greek, it's the word metanoao, metanoao. It means to change one's mind and one's purpose, the reason for doing the things I do. Why? Because you, you've discovered some new knowledge, something new has kind of come to you and you've realized it's made you change not just your direction, but your purpose. This is the kind of repentance that would have led my grandmother, right? Once she realized she was going the wrong way, not to just feel bad, but to actually turn around, even if it inconvenienced her, or if it flew in the face of what she wanted, or, or the things that she believed prior to that. It, it would be the kind of repentance that would make my grandmother go, I probably am getting a little too old to drive. I should get an Uber, right? It's a very different kind of repentance. And that is the repeated call for repentance that Jesus and the New Testament authors who translated his message were calling you and I to. Luke chronicles that Jesus said, I have not come to call the, the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've come to call sinners to metanoau, to change their purpose. I didn't come to make them feel bad, right? I came to change them at their very core. John the Baptist said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is more about feeling sorry, right? It's more about, it's, it's, it, there's more than just feeling regret. There is and always will be a fruit, a certain fruit that comes with that kind of change. So here's my question this morning. Have you been with us along these few weeks here in our Relationship Remodel series, right? Given the power of relationships, the power they have in our lives, Told you, Harvard study, 90% of the success or failure in our lives due to relationships. Given what their significance is for us, those we love, the world at large. Remember, it was Jesus that said it was our relationships that would show not only that we're his followers, that we're Christians, we should be able to be identified not by a cross on our neck, but by the relationships we're in, right? The quality of them, how we love one another. It was Jesus who said that these relationships would validate to the world that he is who he said he is and that God actually loves them. One of Jesus' final prayers for you and I. He said, Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one, right? We're invited into that relational dance. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. 
Here it is, guys. Then the world will know what? That you sent me, and I've loved them even as you have loved me. That's how important these relationships are, okay? For you, for God, and for the world. And if they're that important, if they're that important, I hope you're convinced of it by now. Here's a serious question. Have you repented about your relationships? I don't mean the kind of repentance that goes, well, I feel bad that, you know, that I'm fighting with somebody or that, that I've got some struggles or bad ones or broken ones. I feel bad about maybe the way I treated somebody. That, that's not it. I mean the kind of repentance, and again, because it's so important to us and others and God, that it not only makes you think differently about your relationships, but you actually change everything inside of you. You begin to change the purpose that they exist for, right? Your behavior in them becomes completely different. I got to tell you, when it comes to relationships, the way we exist in them, repentance can be tough. I don't know if you've been working on the homework. I understand. The homework can be tough. Next week, in fact, we're going to deal with that a little bit. But, but this week, right, I have to tell you, I, have, I counsel a lot of people in, in struggling relationships. And there are a certain amount of people when challenged with the fact that remodeling a relationship would mean that they have to change, that they would have to repent, right? I have been told time and time again but people, by people that they're not going to change. I've had, literally had people, two that I can remember specifically, where they, we would talk about the stuff that's going on in their relationships, and they would acknowledge that they're being a jerk. They'd go, I understand that I'm a jerk. In fact, they would use stronger language than that, but we're in church. I understand that I'm a you-know-what, right? But I'm not changing. And if the other, people doesn't li- if the, the other person doesn't like it, it's, it's their problem. I, I would tell you other variations of this include things like, this is just the way I am. You have to accept me for the way I am. Or I was this way when you married me, so it's your problem, not mine. Or I'm happy in the relationship the way it is. If you have a problem, it's your problem. Those are not repentant statements. What would it look like to repent, to change our mind about the purpose of relationships? To say, no, no, this is about me. I have to change. I have to change my purpose. Well, we've talked about over the last couple of weeks a few of these kind of foundational structural issues that, that, that are involved in remodeling our relationships already. To remodel a relationship, you've got to do the same thing you do when you remodel a house. You've got to take old things out and put new things in. Some things come out easy, right? Like it's easy to swap out the paint and the furniture. Other things, and these are the ones we've dealt with so far, they're the harder issues, the structural stuff, right? Like removing beams, Fixing or adding to a foundation, those things don't change easily. And that's what we've been working on. If you recall, foundational issue number one so far, we got to remove the old foundation of the models we have for being a wife or a husband, a parent, a friend, the ones that we've acquired by watching others. And, and, and look, for most of us, not all of us, but for most of us, those models, they could, be, been, they could have been good or bad. For most of us, those models are our parents. We have to repent of that model. We've got to get rid of it and replace it with a different one. Even if it worked for your parents, it was likely not the right model. And what is that model? Well, over and over, the scriptures point to just one model on which every relationship we're in should be based. The Apostle Paul told the Philippians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He wrote to the Ephesians, 
follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We need to change our models out, right? We need to repent of the model that we've been following, maybe our parents' examples, whatever, or who, whoever's they may be, and we need to say, no, 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 that was great, but that's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to walk this way now. This is the new model for relationships. Have you repented of your old model yet? Have you replaced them with the Jesus model? I asked you, we discussed the need to repent of our perceived purposes for our relationships, right? Again, foundational. In almost every relationship we find ourselves in, sitting at the root of that relationship is what I can get out of it. A lot of times this is not conscious, but, but it's there. Lots of research out there, as always, I, I always encourage you to, to not just take my word on things, check them out for yourself. The science behind relationships, and you'll see this everywhere, reveals that what each of us is actually trying to do in a relationship is, is meet very real needs. Specifically, there, there are 10 of them. They're called the 10 relational or 10 emotional needs. Maggie's going to put them up here first, but check these out. In all of our relationships, these are the things that we're trying to get out of them. Respect, comfort, support, approval, attention, encouragement, security, acceptance, appreciation, affection. That's what we're trying to get. We might not even be aware of it, but that's why we got in many of these things. And, and so we walk around in some ways, right, like, like a giant vacuum. There's this giant sucking sound coming out of us, right, where we're just trying to pull these things from people, spouses, kids, jobs, friends. If you think about it, right, these are your plans and your hopes and your dreams. They all tie to those 10 things. If you think about your plans and hopes and dreams, they're all attached to those 10 things. And we're trying to get, in our relationships, people to meet them for us. And what makes relationships break down is when those needs feel unmet. And there are lots of ways we react when that begins to happen, right? We can go ballistic, we can power up, or we can check out. None of them are healthy, and none of them serve the purpose uh, uh, that relationships were supposed to serve for us in the world. See, what we need to repent of is trying to, to get our human relationships to be the primary way in which you get those needs met. All of them were primarily, and you can look at that list, all of them were primarily designed to be met by God. And, and when constantly you just keep carrying those 10 things around and placing them on the shoulders of very flawed human beings, right, bad things are bound to happen. Disappointment is built into that model. Your spouse, your wife, your husband, your kids, your boss are not equipped to be the primary. They are equipped to meet those needs, but not to be the primary source for meeting those needs. God was, is there for that. Peter, in writing about love and submission, he recognizes all of this and he concludes, therefore, cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So before we go any further, have you repented from trying to get all of these things, these needs that, were, were, that, that exist in you that were to be met by God? Have you repented of trying to put them on someone else, to make them somebody else's responsibility? Have you changed your mind and your ways and your purposes yet? Have you repented of the me first and moved more to a the first? We get the foundation right, right? Now the foundation is laid. We begin to build the house. 
the relationships begin to change, if you think about it, right? Their purpose is no longer primarily to, to meet those needs, those hopes and dreams and plans, right? Of course, a relationship is a secondary source for those things, but when, when God begins to meet them for you, it frees you up. It takes such a burden off of all of your relationships, and it allows you to begin to love others the way Jesus does, to put them first, to put their hopes and dreams and plans and purposes first. We repent of thinking relationships are based on what I can get out of them because the need's being met. And so now we're free to go in another direction and restructure our relationships. So, and here's the interesting thing. When, when those needs are getting met, it frees you up to, to, to make the relationship, to move relationships towards what you can give to another versus what you can get out of another. It's what we've been calling this two-sided coin, right? Love on one side, submission on the other. This is the model of how Christ loves us. His commitment is love, right? His commitment to act for our well-being. And the submission of Jesus, who prioritizes our well-being over his own. They go first, we go last. Their hopes, dreams, wishes, plans, desires. Heck, the scripture is clear. Think of others as more important than yourself. Their importance we place before our own. Love and submission. This is our story. This is the gospel story. This is why people were to look at our relationships and go, boy, those, they, these people in that church, they live a totally different way. Jesus did this for us. We were to do it for everyone. And so have you repented? Have you changed your mind about submission in every relationship? Context, right? You have to understand. You don't go and submit to your four-year-old. I have not submitted to Landry yet, right? Or Landry would have choked on 10,000 things by now, right? She wants to put everything in her mouth, right? So obviously you bring context to this, but in every human relationship with healthy people, relatively healthy people, this is the mark. Last week we began doing some of the detail work on what a remodel includes. Once you get the foundation laid right, things flow a little easier when the foundation's right. We, we move from the instructions, the model, to the particular, if you will. Paul wrote to this church, much like our church, full of smart, hard-charging, affluent, successful people in the city of Corinth. And he goes, look, I know who you are and what you're accomplishing. I, I'm impressed. But he goes, look, at the end of the day, none of it's going to matter if you don't love one another. And he described this agape form of love that we talked about last week, that it was patient and kind. It, it didn't envy. It didn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, not easily angered. It, Keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Love, agape in the Greek, it always protects, trusts, hopes, always perseveres, and never fails. I gave you some homework. 101, 201, 301, right? 101 was given this list of things. I acknowledge that I have not loved you well in these couple of ways. I'm going to work on it. 201 was to allow some input, right? Could you show me, tell me two of these things that would help you to feel more loved in our relationship? And of course, 301. 301 was dangerous. I don't know if any of you got there. 301 was, I'm going to invite criticism. Tell me two things that I am doing that show you that I don't love you. I hope you're working on those things. The truth is most people won't. Most of us, it's easier not to work on our relationships. I get that. It's challenging. Now, today, I, I want to continue on with the, the detail work, the trim job in the relationship. Once they're set on the right foundation, I, I want to give you a couple more of these things that we need to repent and replace. 
because and based on the persistent commands of the scripture related to all relationships. And I want to tell you, I'm going to just share some stuff that Joan and I have experienced in our marriage. Again, this is for all relationships, but, but we began working on these principles together about 15 years ago. And I'm telling you, it has changed not just our marriage, but our lives. It has been life-changing. So let's go with number one. Here's number one. First for today, I believe the scriptures call you to repent, you and I, to repent of fixing thee and replace it with fixing me. It's interesting. Almost nobody shows up in my office and says, hey, John, you know, my marriage is in, in terrible shape. My, my house is divided. My kids won't talk to me. There's such a problem with me. Nobody walks in and goes, I, am so, I, I stink at relationships. Would you help me be a better spouse, a better parent, a better friend, a better coworker? Would you help me to change? Almost nobody does, right? Almost everybody shows up wanting change. Everybody wants change in these key relationships, in these primary areas. But everybody wants change in them. Those people, right? How do we fix this, right? Usually means how do I fix them? How do I, I was trying to think about this, how do I get them to see things the way I see things? How do I get them to agree with my perception of what's good and true and right? How can I get them to move towards me? But here's the thing. As much as the scriptures speak about relationships, and guys, I hope I've convinced you, there's few things they speak of more than our relationships one with another, right? Best as I can tell, right, there is not a lot written to them about those people in the descriptions of relationships. It's almost always written to me about my attitude, my response, my responsibilities, my actions, my thoughts, my mindset. It's always written to me not them. And so I, I would tell you, if you're going to remodel your relationships, if you're going to change them, right, if you're going to repent and, and turn directions and find new purpose, we have to change an underlying assumption, which is that the problem is not them, it's me. Now, this shouldn't come as any shock. Jesus very famously taught this. Almost everybody knows. I mean, if you're a believer or not, you've heard this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? This is a relational quote, right? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Guys, the foundation, right, of God-honoring relationships, right, is not submission, it is submitting. I'm not trying to get someone to submit to me. My goal is to put myself underneath them. In some, in some sense, the source, the verse for the entire series, we always have to go back to this in our relationships with one another. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, submit to one another, why? Out of reverence for Christ. Not because they deserve it, not because they're meeting me halfway. I submit to others because Jesus, this is the way Jesus loved me. I replicate it. This is the way that God had exists, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, constantly putting the well-being of the other first. It's what Jesus does with the, the Father and the Spirit while he's on earth. It's what Jesus did for us. Jesus puts you and I, our, our needs, ahead of his own. It cost him the cross. 
Again, we've gone over this, but Scripture lays out all the various relationships in which we sub should submit to one another. It's not limited to marriage by any means, but it certainly works best there. Peter, Jesus' most famous disciple, right? Peter writes about this concept, and he writes all of the people that we should be submitting to, right? Uh, authorities in our lives, authorities in the community. I mean, he gives this, this, this list of people that we should submit to. Then he turns towards marriage, okay? He goes, okay, now I'm going to move, I'm going to take this concept, we're to be submitting to everybody, now I'm going to turn it towards marriage. And, and this is what Peter, now remember guys, this is Peter, this is, I walked with Jesus every day. Not only did I walk with Jesus, I walked on water, okay? So this is probably a guy worth listening to, Right? We'll start with ladies. Ladies, what would Peter say if you showed up in his office and your marriage was struggling? You might come in with like a list of things that, that, that this guy is driving me nuts, right? These are the things he, he's not doing. These are the things he's doing that he needs to stop, right? A lot of them would tie back to those 10 needs that I'm trying to get met in the relationship and he's not meeting them. You'd walk into Peter's office. Peter, I need some help. Help me change my husband. Here's what he would say. Wives, in the same way, in the same way, by the way, he had just written all about submit, submission, all the people you should submit to, okay? So this is not just written to women, and it is not just written to wives. In the same way of all the other submissions I've just laid out, wives, in that same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Wives, if you want to change your husbands, if you want to change your marriage, do this. You go first. You go first. You, you just, you submit to him. You place yourself under him. You put first his desires, his wants, his needs, his hopes, his dreams. You put them ahead of yourself and watch what happens. See if he doesn't react and respond. Move towards you. Again, disclaimer, Right? Uh, if you're involved in a relationship that's an abusive relationship, right, it, it, this is not for all people for all times. It is a general principle that needs to be applied within given contexts. Now, I know you might be thinking, well, that seems awful misogynistic, right? Typical guy. Which, right, wouldn't be surprising given the era and the culture into which it was written. In the day Peter's writing this, women, especially wives, weren't considered, I mean, they were, they were considered to be possessions, not only could they not vote, I mean, their testimony wouldn't even account in a court case. And it's into that culture, which is so fascinating, okay? Peter goes on, husbands, in the same way, what way would that be, guys? In the same way I just told your wife. In the same way. In the same way of all of those descriptions about submission I just gave you. In that same way, you should be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Respect, that would have blown the first century mind. Respect, I was thinking about just trading her in, right? Respect. As the weaker partner, it's talking about strength there, it's not a statement on value or purpose or worth. As heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. How interesting is that, gentlemen? You know what that means? It, I think it simply means it's hard to be close to God if you can't be close to your wife. Your relationships in this realm echo into the spiritual realm. I mean, I know this, right? Like, have you felt this? I mean, it's hard to, 
it's hard for me to be fighting with my wife and then just like go in my room and go, oh God, I just love you so much. God's like, really? Because if you do, you'd love your wife because I love her. Now go fix that. It's amazing stuff. It's first things first. And this remount, I got to focus on me and I got to stop looking at you. Eyes off you, eyes on me. What can I do? How can I change? Next, next number two for today. Repent of saying what you think and replace it with thinking about what you say. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> there is, I don't know how this came about. There is some kind of cultural cliche out there that says, well, if you love somebody, then you should be able to share with them everything. You should just be able to share whatever's on your heart. Wrong. <laughs> Lie. Bad idea. Sounds good. I get it. Oh, that's all. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Just say whatever you're thinking. Friends, that is the worst idea on the face of the earth. I'm going, I'm, I want you to have a new scriptural idea. I'd encourage you to put this in place, right? Uh, and, and, and if you do, if you put this principle in place, here's what I'll tell you. You will wind up not saying, in the beginning especially, you will wind up not saying the majority of what you think out loud. Here's why. Paul told the Corinthians, that same church in a city much like ours that we discussed last week, right? He, this is the city that he's writing about love too. He says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, there it is again, a relational appeal to how Jesus related to us. There's the model, humility and gentleness, right? We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Before something comes out of my mouth, in any relationship, I pause and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before I say this, let's think this through, right? What are you going to think about, right? Well, let's back up. What comes to our minds first, right? What comes to our minds first almost all the time are the thoughts that are generated out of our broken and sinful nature, right? I mean, all of us, right, are, are, are broken by sin. All of us primarily have a me-first attitude. Those of us that, that have asked Jesus, said we, we want to give our lives to you, we want to follow you, the scriptures teach that we've been given a new life source. There are seeds that have been implanted within us that will grow into these fruits. But a lot of the time, these things remain seeds. And what exists most of the time is what comes out of our brokenness. So most of what I'm thinking is not right. It just is what it is. And the more you start taking thought, captive every thought, you'll start going, huh, that's amazing. Most of what I'm thinking about is about me, how I've been hurt, how you've offended me, how I've been mistreated or maligned or marginalized. Take every thought captive, which means before it comes out of your mouth, you ask yourself, I'm going to give you a criteria. You ready for the criteria? Here's what Paul told the Ephesians. This is the church that he wrote about uh, marriage to. He says, do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only, can I emphasize, only, 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 what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, according to their needs. In other words, Paul's saying you need to be thinking about the other person first. You need to understand what their needs might be, their story, right? Is what you're about to say to them, right, that it may benefit those who listen? Is what you're about to say going to be beneficial for building them up? Is it going to benefit them? 
This is not about expressing your, your, your heart and desires to others. This is not about expressing your broken nature, which is coming out of our, our, our unregenerate selves. There's something that's kind of creeped into the Christian culture, too, a lot. I, I, I've heard it sometimes called a, um, clean the drain meetings. If somebody hurts you or offends you, you should go to them. Maybe. But I think a better first question, as you take every thought captive, might be, what is it in me that made me get so offended? Remember a couple weeks ago, what causes fights and quarrels among you, that teaching? I mean, if you find yourself constantly going to tell people what they've done to offend you, how they've hurt you, maybe, maybe, maybe the problem's not them. Maybe you got to stop and go, why do I get so offended? Maybe it's me. You don't have to say everything that comes to your mind. In fact, the better you get at this principle, the more you'll realize a lot of things I don't need to say. And over time, as you, as you, as you perfect this principle, you'll start thinking those things a lot less. Number three, you need to repent of, this one's really interesting, okay? You need to repent of only the truth matters. And you need to replace it with love matters more. Which I know might sound a little controversial, I know, I, I remember when this principle came home to me, I'm pretty good at arguing on my feet. I kind of get paid to stand up here every week and work on it, right? And so you really don't want to be married to me, right? Because I'm, I can be a jerk. And so what I realized one time, Joan and I were in an argument, and this wasn't all that long ago, right, relative to how we've been working on these things, and I was right, as I usually am, I was right. <laughs> And um, I take great privilege in showing um, anybody, not just Joan, that I'm right. I will prove to you that I'm wrong. I will give you the list of all the reasons I'm right. I can show you. I can prove to you I'm right. And I just, I just beat that girl over the head with truth like you wouldn't believe. And then when I got done, I looked at my wife and I was like, none of that mattered because I saw what I was doing to her. I beat her up with truth so I could get her to do and believe and think like I thought. I mean, I, I was right. I had the facts behind me. But what mattered more was what mattered to her, how she was receiving what I was saying. Her truth needed to matter to me as much as the truth. I didn't come up with this. Remember when Paul was writing to that church in Corinth, he starts when he, before he gives that list of what love's like, remember what he said? He goes, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries, if I have all knowledge, I'm the smartest guy on the face of the earth, but I don't have love. I'm nothing. Paul wrote to Timothy, trying to train up young Timothy to, to follow in Paul's footsteps, right, and be a leader in the church. Here's what he said. He, it's really important if you think about what he's trying to teach Timothy. He says, Timothy, the purpose of my instruction, what would that would be? That would be the goal of all the things I've written. And what would that be? Most of the New Testament. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. The final goal, Paul would say, is not to be right, the final goal is to be loved. Truth is there to serve love. It is not a tool to be wielded, right, that you club somebody into submission with. It's not to be ignored, mind you. Truth is important. It matters. We are to tell the truth. 
That is loving. It is loving to tell people the truth. But over and over, many of you know this in the scriptures, it says to tell the truth, but to tell the truth in love. Love. It's the filter through which the truth gets run. What my wife thinks should matter to me even if she's wrong. Do you see that? How they feel, what they're experiencing from me, I have to care. Again, it's best seen in a marital relationship, but it applies in every one of them. If my wife says, uh, you know, I'm not going to give you what we argue about. Well, maybe second service. But anyway, if my wife says, all you ever do is go out with your friends, right? That might not be true. You might be able to pull up your calendar and show them, no, look, I only went with them two times this month. Two times. You and I live together. We're together 24-7, 365. And we went out six times last week or last month. I mean, they were to kids' wrestling matches and ballet performances. But we went out. And you might be able to win the argument. But you will lose her heart. And then the question is, what did you gain? So you were right. Congratulations. The better question is, the better question is when, when somebody says something to you that you go, well, I think the truth, that's not the truth. The better question to ask yourself is, what have I done to make you feel that way? What have I done? Again, it's always about me. What have I done that makes you think and feel that, even if it's not true? And what do I need to change so that you never feel that again? What does love mean? Love means that, that it might not matter, it might not even be right, but if it matters to them, then it matters to me. Here's the, the, the one that helped Joan and I the most in our relationship. By far, we use this one all the time. We were talking about it, date night at Applebee's this week. We're sitting there, and, you know, Joan is a pain in the butt because she listens to these sermons, and she expects me to do them too. <laughs> so she's like, well, let's go through your questions, hon. And I'm like, oh, boy, me and my big mouth. And so we start with 101, 201, and I said to her, I'm not sure we're ready for 301. Like, and so we talked about it. The truth is we went through it, and because we've been working on these things for so long, it was like, man, we, we have really, the Lord has changed us and, and, and opened our hearts to one another because of these principles so, so incredibly. But we both agreed that this principle is the number one principle that changed our relationship, and it's this. You need to repent of negative assumptions and you need to replace them with what I'll call generous narratives. Dr. Sandra Scheider wrote a brilliant paper. It was called In Search of Realistic Optimism, Meaning, Knowledge, and Warm Fuzzies. Huge scientific paper. She concluded what Paul prescribed to the Corinthians. Remember that line in 1 Corinthians 13? It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, right? Specifically, it trusts and hopes. It always trusts and hopes. Dr. Schneider called this in her paper realistic optimism. Guys, this is the key to every relationship. In fact, business books, top-selling business books have been written about this principle and applying it in the workplace. So it's not just about marriage. She based her model on a clear distinction between what she would say fuzzy knowledge, you don't know the facts, and fuzzy meaning, you have latitude in interpretations, okay? Optimism is not a good way to deal with fuzzy knowledge. If you don't know your cholesterol numbers, right, and you're having chest pain, it doesn't make sense just to assume that you're safe from a cardiac event. Dealing with fuzzy knowledge by assuming the best possible set of facts is dangerous, okay? Don't do that. However, 
There are many things that happen in life, and you know this, where people have a range of possible interpretations. All of them might be reasonable ways of making meaning out of a set of circumstances. Somebody walks past me in the hallway without greeting me. I could choose the, and this is her language, not mine, but it is so fascinating and biblical. She writes, I could choose the me-centric interpretations. You hear that? The me-centric, it's about me. The me-centric interpretations, he doesn't even like me. He doesn't think I'm worth acknowledging. I'm so easy to look, overlook. Or I could choose the other-centric interpretations. Perhaps he was thinking about something else. Maybe he didn't remember my name and didn't want me to be embarrassed. Maybe he doesn't like to greet people in general. In this instance, she says, selecting a me-centric interpretation would make me miserable, while selecting an other-centric interpretation has no emotional load for me. Realistic optimists make a practice, church listeners, realistic optimists make a practice of selecting interpretations that contribute to their own well-being by not being me-centric. It is our language, right? It, it, is, it is the language of submission through interpretation. Love always hopes and trusts. Love is realistically optimist. I choose to believe this about you. I don't assume that this happened because of a bad motive. I create a, generative, a generous narrative for why it happened. In fact, this, the science behind this, and it's right with the Bible, is so crazy. There is several studies out there now, more powerful research related to the concept that love hopes all things and believes all things. Contemporized, perhaps, you might say that love chooses to be blind. I'm going to give you the example here. Most of us were taught in relationships, right? Your parents might have taught you, don't have rose-colored glasses. It actually, that turns out to be wrong. Multiple studies have shown that those who are unreal, unrealistically idealistic about, for example, in your marriage, about your partners, are more satisfied for, for long periods of time. The last study I read on this was 13 years 13 years after folks got married, if they were unrealistically idealistic about their mate, 13 years later, they were in the same, they had the same level of love for their mate. Versus people who just had realistic expectations, their marriages were going down, down, down. It, this idealization concept seems to thwart the commonly found, right, decline in satisfaction that strikes marriage over time, the author said. If you didn't consider idealization at all in this sample, as in many others, satisfaction declined on average. But if you looked at the people relatively high versus low on idealization, people who are relatively high don't show, listen to this, any decline. None. What's going on? The positive outlook, giving your partner more credit than what they might be due, seeing your partner as a closer reflection of your ideal partner than what might be true. It helps when things get thorny. All of that positive thinking, she added, colors the way we perceive our partner's behavior. It's a generous narrative. It gives them a stronger sense of optimism that they can resolve problems within a relationship. Happily married couples write generous narratives about each other. Their stories give the most charitable explanation for their behavior, the other's behavior, how they see them. We have to repent of negative assumptions. Oh, he just does it all the time. He's so unthoughtful. He's so rude. We have to rethink this and, and replace them with generous narratives. I'll give you one that has helped me. This is written to husbands. I think it's applicable across the board. This one has helped me with my wife. Paul said, husbands, right, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Can I just ask you to listen to this, okay, and really take this seriously for a minute? How did Christ love the church? I mean, was the church, was the church attractive? 
Had the church, you know, met him halfway? No, right? The church was a mess. It, it, was, it was a disaster. The church was spitting on him and crucifying him, hurting him. It was doing nothing for him. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the, by the washing with water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. I write about my wife all of the time a generous narrative. I try to study her. What I, I take that very serious, right? I, I want to present back to God my wife better than I got her. What Paul seems to be indicating here, right, is that my wife, because she's a human being that lives in this world, this world has done several things to her. It has stained, wrinkled, and blemished my beautiful wife. And my role, I get to be like Jesus. I get to figure out what those places are, those areas of insecurity, those, those places where she's been hurt, and I figure them out, Every time, I, I, if you've done any time with me, I, I always give this example of this. You ever see when uh, there's an oil spill and the, the scientists go out into the water and they bring the, the creatures in, the birds, and they gently cleanse that bird and they wash every bit of oil out of every single wing? I think about that, like, with how I treat my wife. Like, I want to gently undo everything that's been done to her. I write a story about her, a generous narrative. I study her. What are the stains and the wrinkles and the blemishes that life has put on her? And then, like the doctor on the shore, I set about trying to take them out. And finally, there's this. What would drive others, you to see others this way? One more last thing on science. You know Maslow, right? Ab Abraham Maslow, who came up with the famous hierarchy of needs, hierarchy of needs, which is kind of, if you think about it, not too unlike those 10 things we're all trying to get out of relationships. He basically says that if you get those things from somewhere else, not in the relationships, but if you get them from somewhere else, he did a study. He was actually fascinated with romantic love. His biographer wrote this 50 years after he died. He goes, he did a lot of work on romantic love. And do you know what Maslow came to a conclusion? He says there was only two things that could sustain romantic love over time. But again, I, I, I think it goes across all relationships. It's cited in business journals. The first was that same concept of idealization. Right? You've got to begin to look at your partner differently. You've got to begin to think, look at your boss differently. You've got to begin to look at your neighbor differently. Generous narratives about them. But then the second one was this, gratitude. Maslow, this famous psychologist, goes, you need to begin to be grateful for your relationships. And so the last one, we're going to repent of taking others for granted, and we're going to replace it with having gratitude for others. Guys, do you realize what a gift any relationship you are in is, do you understand how gift, the gift you've been given in the life of another human being to walk through and next to in life in one relationship or role or another? You get nothing better than that. I mean, we screw this up all the time. You are going to be given no greater gift than a relationship with another human being. Paul, over and over in his writings, over and over, here it is in Philippians, I think it's the, it's the best one, but there, it's everywhere. He goes, I thank my God every time I remember you. It was incessant. He wrote 13 letters. In nine of them, he explicitly gives thank for the, thanks for the recipients of the letter. And these were usually letters he was correcting them about things, and yet he's thanking God for them. When was the last time 
even in difficult relationships where you were grateful, just all out grateful for your husband, your wife, your kids, your neighbor, your boss. Think about it. Think about when you've been, you've thanked God. When's the last time you thanked God for a person? We're great at thanking God for things, right? Oh God, thank you for this. Thank you for that. How about your, how about your, your enemies? When's the last time you thanked God for them? When's the last time you gave thanks for the guy that's driving you crazy or for that spouse that isn't perfect or for, for that child that just won't listen? There is undeniable, unbelievable, biblically revealed, scientifically proven power in gratitude. The studies on this are overwhelming, but here's the truth. You have all of these relationships all around you. And for the most part, we just take them for granted, don't we? We just take them for granted. We focus on what's wrong instead of being grateful for the gift. God gave you a human being to walk with, be with. With all of her imperfections, with all of his stains and blemishes, and you get the privilege, you get the privilege of being like Jesus to another human being, to spouses and kids and friends. What a gift. Give thanks repeatedly, prayerfully, and watch what it'll do about you, to your attitude in your relationships. Let me get you to stand. We'll close this song. Seize me rise when darkness fills the skies. I will keep a grip on hope as I sail through the unknown. Clouds fill the atmosphere, waves swell with doubt and fear. But in the middle of this storm, you show me I am not alone. My hope. My hope is found in Jesus, the anchor of my soul, standing on firm foundation, a lighthouse shining hope, yet in my darkest hour, your light will guide me home, a beacon for my rescue, Jesus the trouble too shall pass. Clouds fill the atmosphere, waves swell with doubt and fear, but in the middle of this storm, you show me
for every relationship which when it's done right the whole world looks looks at and goes huh i think i understand who god is now father i pray that as we talk about these difficult things i know when i hear them my first thought is well see these people need to treat me this way and i know the scripture is see i need to begin to treat people this way and so lord i pray that the holy spirit would gently convict us and point us in the right in the right direction that we would be a people full of gratitude for the humans you've placed in all of our lives we ask it in the great name of jesus our savior and our friend and the church at mendham said Amen. see you all next sunday us today. We'll see you again next week.